Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, trying to stick to a New Year's resolution to exercise more and eat better. Well, there's an awful lot of tech out there that promises to help you along the way, right? From fitness trackers to apps, you name it, smart scales, it's all out there. But maybe it's a data diet that is part of the secret to a healthy 2024. We find out why. Most of us have probably consumed a bottle of water or two at some time in the not-so-distant past, so this will be of interest. Researchers in the U.S. have discovered that the sample of bottled water sold in stores can contain 10 to 100 times more bits of plastic than previously estimated. These are nanoplastics, by the way, tiny, tiny particles. So how concerned should you be? We asked one of the researchers who carried out the work that very question. On our monthly segment, A Little More True Crime, it's been nearly 17 years since one of the most high-profile and heavily covered child disappearances in memory. Madeline McCann vanished from her bed in a vacation apartment in the southern Portuguese resort town of Praia de Luz just days before her fourth birthday. John Clark was one of the first reporters on scene the very next morning in Portugal. He's covered this case for years, including in his book, My Search for Madeline, and he joins me to talk about the case and why German police fairly recently may have finally found the answers to this 17-year-old mystery. But first, we celebrate the show's second birthday today. That's right. A little more conversation hit the airwaves for the first time on January 10th, 2022. We've had tons of fantastic guests, hundreds of them, uh, over the past 24 months. We've looked back at some of the chats and topics that really stood out, and we've invited one of the guests, and we've invited one of those guests to rejoin us for the celebrations tonight. A hint, she always brings snacks. Two years, it's gone by very quickly. We've spoken with, or I've spoken with hundreds of guests, maybe even over a thousand at this point, over the past 24 months, from right across the spectrum, newsmakers, politicians, entertainers, authors, athletes, scientists, experts of all stripes, even a Canadian getting set to head to the, well, on a lunar mission at least. Uh, Here's astronaut Jeremy Hansen. Um, Seven-year-old Jeremy would be shocked and wouldn't have believed, wouldn't have truly believed it was possible. But you know, seven-year-old Jeremy was naive enough to to just say he wanted to do it and to tell other people. And eventually, it was all those contributions, all that mentoring, all that guidance that prepared me to be where I am now and fully equipped to go do this mission on behalf of Canada. Back here on Earth, we've seen or we've been there when disaster has struck and lives are on the line. This past year, of course, saw the worst wildfire season in Canadian history, including as flames tore through uh, the central Okanagan in BC, destroying homes, dreams and livelihoods. And some of the most poignant conversations I've had over the past two years are with those right on the front lines of those disasters who still take the time to share their stories with me and with you. Here is West Kelowna Fire Chief Jason Brolin from this past summer with words that gave us all a real sense of what it was like to be in his shoes or boots and how much the public's support helped. I characterized this morning at shift change as a fire truck parade and I said it with you know just as a little bit of humor because that's what it was this morning. Well tonight uh, at shift change the streets lined with people uh, who are screaming at the firefighters as they come and go um, for their shift change and it's, it's really a pretty powerful thing that's unfolded right in front of me here. And at every disaster, of course, there are people whose lives are turned upside down in an instant. And they've shared their stories with me as well. And that is so appreciated because we understand how difficult it is for people to take the time to tell the world what's happened to them and how difficult it can be. Here's Heather McKay after she watched her West Kelowna home burn down in real time. 
So we have been having some mice or rats or something in a cupboard. So we put up a wise cam in that cupboard just to watch. We called it our mouse cam. And um, on Friday evening, I noticed I'd gotten notifications at like 4.32 to 4.37. And when I looked at them, it was just the cupboard filled with smoke and the smoke detector going and uh, popping and crackling and banging in the background. And so we knew then that our home was probably gone. From right here at home, we've also reached out to those living through conflicts in other parts of the world, whether it was the mom of a young woman who was taken hostage by Hamas on October the 7th, people who've survived hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, people on the ground and around the world, and of course, Ukraine. I was on air when Russia launched its invasion of its neighbor on February 24th, 2022. In fact, we hadn't been on air for that long, if you do the math. And we spoke to those living through the constant shelling and the threat of death, including one woman, Svetlana Prostupa, who's now living in Britain. We spoke to her, though, as her city, Kharkiv, was under attack. It's scary to go to the bathroom or to the kitchen to grab some water or food because we don't know whether we should should go somewhere near the windows and risk our lives or maybe stay, keep on staying in the corridor and lying and covering our heads. We understand, of course, that all, that all can be a little overwhelming to hear, uh, that sometimes people like a little bit of a balance, maybe even something that'll make them smile. That's why on the show, we always try to find a way to be lighthearted as well by finding entertaining, insightful people, including some of the biggest names in Canadian entertainment from right across the decades. Brian Adams, Sylvia Tyson, Mike Reno, Glass Tiger, Dan Aykroyd, Rick Mercer, Randy Bachman. The list goes on and on. And one of my favorite Canadian musicians, uh, when Gordon Lightfoot passed, we had a chance to speak with the great Tom Cochran. And here he is talking about his memories of the late, great Gordon Lightfoot. I wanted so, so bad to ask him if he'd, he'd come up and sing. And he interjected. He said, would you, would you like me to sing? And I said, anything you want to do. <laughs> you know, This is your festival. You put this festival on the map. And I said, uh, you, you know, you are the bard, sir. And uh, he went out uh, on a chair and sung, uh, if you could read my mind. I asked him to sing Canadian Railway tri- Trilogy, but he said the same thing. He said, I think for tonight, that might be a little too ambitious. Like, I'm not going to do this. Tom Cochran there. You know, it's been such a privilege over the past 24 months to speak to so many great people. When I bump into folks, though, often the ones I know, maybe just because they were listening that first week, they often bring up one segment, something we talked about in the very early days of the show, again, on that first week, a type topic we can all still get really excited about, and that's food, snacks. Canadian snacks in particular. Janice Thiessen was my guest that night. Uh, She's a Winnipeg-based food historian, a professor of history at the University of Manitoba, and her book is called Snacks, a Canadian Food History. And even early on, I thought, what a great story to tell on this show. So it is my great pleasure, as we celebrate two years, to welcome Janice back on the show tonight uh, to whet our appetite for our second birthday. Janice, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, this is, I mean, I remember that chat really well, but some of the things that I have not looked at an old Dutch potato chip or a Hawkins cheese in the same way since we spoke. Those are some incredible stories. Tell me again, a bit for, the, for people who may not have been there to hear it the first time around, some of those incredible stories around old Dutch and just how important it was, not just to Manitoba, but kind of to the economy of Manitoba. Oh, for sure. I mean, it, uh, old Dutch is known as by Canadians, by many Canadians, as a Canadian brand, but it's really not. It's just uh, a tremendously 
favorited uh, brand here. So in, in Winnipeg, my hometown, uh, there was a, a marketer and distributor who would make trips down to Minneapolis to the head office, uh, to the main production facility, and would bring boxes of chips back to Winnipeg, sell them. It became so popular that uh, eventually uh, that distributor managed to convince Old Dutch to open a plant here. And so now there's a whole Canadian division that spread across the West uh, uh, Western Canada. And then eventually, very slowly, uh towards Eastern Canada as well. So it's now a, a nationwide um, business producing in many provinces across the country. Yeah, I remember that every time we would be on an election tour and with reporters who had been, uh, who were based in Ottawa at this point or maybe Toronto, but had grown up out West, they would be stuffing their bags or their knapsacks with old Dutch chips If we, because this is a time I don't think they were available too far East just yet. Uh, Hawkins Cheesies, we talk about those all the time. That's a really cool story in your book as well about this company that just decided to do one thing and didn't really care about getting too big or 24 hour production or anything. It wasn't bigger was never better for those folks. Oh, exactly. And it started uh, small and uh, grew and then they decided, nope, they were just going to stick to the one product to just ship it in different sizes bags, not even bother changing flavors, uh, single flavor. Uh, and they they don't work evenings, they don't work weekends. They're just happy to stay the size that they are. They sell everything they can make, and they're they're you know managed to avoid this whole growth imperative that so many businesses seem to uh, latch onto these days. So yeah, two amazing companies with great histories, both that started in uh, fairly bizarre kind of ways. I mean, Old Dutch right starts with it's named by a guy who's who's called Karl Marx. And he just starts making chips in his basement, and then it becomes this, you know, international brand. And Hawkins had that weird story about about something about Chicago and gangs, and 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 just has a, another very colorful past as well. Oh, exactly! It was uh, part of a very large candy manufacturer in Chicago, where so many candy manufacturers in early 20th century were located because of you know the weather conditions. Um, and, uh, yeah, this, the, they started a branch plant here in Canada uh, as a result of contacting uh, a farmer in the American Midwest who they had heard had developed uh, an extruder machine so that he could store corn more effectively in winter for his cattle. And they thought, well, if we took that and we took that extruded corn product, but we deep fried it and coated it in cheese, maybe we'd have something. Who knew? <laughs> who knew? <laughs> And the mismatched shapes, I always thought that was a really interesting part, that the mismatched shapes are not are not a mistake. No, they're not a mistake. They're unavoidable. It's because they still use that same 1940s machine that that uh, Midwestern farmer designed and built, and it's not computer-controlled. The sizes are what they are when they get extruded through the die, and so sometimes they're large, sometimes they're small, sometimes they're misshapen. You, you get what you get. It's a physical process, and it's it's not standardized. Janice, I was thinking, if people still stop me to talk about our chat two years after we had it, I imagine people must stop you to talk about snacks all the time, or at least if they know it's that you wrote the book, true. they must talk about it. Yeah. How does that work out? Oh, well, you know, I've written four books. I have a fifth book coming up with a co-author in April, uh, and nobody, people only care about snacks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way. But it's, I mean, were you, were you surprised by the reaction to it? Because I think people are just fascinated by snacks, period. But fascinated by, by their own snacks, too. What differentiates you in that great world of snack food and things that come in a bag between what we grew up with and what, say, someone across the border grew up with? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, any historian, when you're writing a book, it's because you have a question uh, that you want to resolve for yourself. And you, you think and hope that it will resonate with other people, that maybe others have that question, too, and want it answered. But you don't know how many really do. And I had been troubled some years ago by some of the conversations, as others were. Uh, that really just disparaged certain categories of, food, of foods as things that we should avoid. And I thought, but what if you, what if you're a worker in one of those plants and that's been your life's work? How are you supposed to feel about now suddenly you're vilified and blamed for all of you know these uh, obesity and half a dozen other serious issues? Uh, is it really your fault? And should you? What should you be thinking about your life's work? And so that's where that investigation came from, being able to interview not only the owners and managers of some of these factories, but the people who work in them, uh, and to delve into some of the history of these, in some cases, century-old brands to find out, you know, is that really the only way to look at snacks, or are there other ways that we can think about these foods that mean so much to so many of us? Janice, I didn't cheat on this, but was it all dressed chips? Am I remembering correctly that those were your favorite? Oh, my favorites keep changing. They were all dressed oh. for a while. It's old Dutch for a while, uh, or sorry, uh, salt and vinegar for a while, and dill pickle for a while, but it's always old Dutch. That's right. We're celebrating the show's second birthday tonight, and it's my pleasure to have Janice Thiessen with us. She was with us on one of those first shows back in January of 2022, talking about her book, Snacks. And we've been talking about snacks and the history of Canadian snacks. But she has a new book that she's co-authored coming out called Manitoba, uh, like the M, you know, Tasty Manitoba. Did you take a food truck around the province and do all this great research? Uh, we did. Uh, I have two research partners, uh, Kimberly Moore and Kent Davies at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. And we got a food truck, which we converted into an oral history lab. So we would take it places and invite people on board the truck and invite them to share a recipe. And then while they cooked a sample of it, we would interview them about that food in their lives and the history of uh, their family and the province. What a cool idea, because, I mean, as you've pointed out, and this is what's really interesting about your work, is that food and history are so intimately intertwined because it's such an important part of all, all our lives. Yes, there is no aspect of history that food doesn't impinge upon, I think. It's just a lovely entryway into talking about all sorts of aspects of the history of not only our province of Manitoba, but of the country and, and the world. Everyone has yeah. a food story. They do. I, some of the in just reading some of the previews of the book. There's you talk about the fat boy in Winnipeg, which I've never. Please forgive me, um, Winnipeggers. I've never had a fat boy in Winnipeg, but they sound pretty tasty. Oh, if you come here, I will buy you one, man. They are something <laughs> special. So it's chili and a burger. Is that I mean more or less? That's a that's a kind of a, <laughs> a simplistic way of, of, of oh. explaining it. That is a that is a fighting phrase. Oh, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> you will. Yeah, there are Winnipeggers now just flipping tables. <laughs> I take it all. I, very, I, I I will be stood corrected then. It's a very particular type of chili. Uh, it's a Greek Canadian chili. It does not contain beans. It's runnier than most chilies, uh, and it usually is uh, infused with some cinnamon. And so uh, my co-author has got a whole chapter there talking about the history of this, uh, how there are traces of it that you can see in the Coney Island hot dogs. Right. Uh, but really, it's a, a, in some ways fairly unique to Manitoba and northwestern Ontario, but very popular here uh, because there are so many uh, diners that are owned and operated by uh, Greek Canadians. 
Right. I, I, I've had a Coney Island hot dog. I'm not going to have to find a way to get have a fat boy suit. And you talk about pierogies and Steinbach, which I realize now are famous, uh, and Cloudberry Jam, another cool one. Cloudberry Jam, yes. This is an amazing thing that uh, we had the opportunity to taste when we were up north. We One of the downfalls of well, Canadian geography is that we tend to, as historians and just as people generally, focus on the big cities and we might pay attention to some of the rural areas surrounding them, but the north is often uh, omitted. And so we made sure that we made a trip to Churchill and had a chance to spend uh, about 10 days there interviewing people and getting to know the region a little bit, although, of course, you can't really know it thoroughly in that length of time. Uh, and so, But we did get to taste uh, things that are unique to that region, like those cloudberries. And the jam. Janice, listen, thank you so much for taking the time to come back and celebrate uh, the second birthday and bring some food along as well. No, who doesn't like someone who bring, does it, who brings snacks to a birthday celebration? <laughs> Oh, it's a pleasure, and congratulations, and happy birthday. Right, thank you. And, and, and just so people know, Manitoba, the book comes out in April, is that right? The new one? The book is called mm, Manitoba, <laughs> The Stories Behind the Foods We Eat. It's available from University of Manitoba Press. You can pre-order it now on their website or on websites of booksellers uh, near you. Uh, and yeah, it's out for sure in April. Well, no guest leaves me quite as hungry every time we speak, Janice. Thank you so much again. Thank you. We're celebrating our second birthday. It was on this day back in 2022. Back. It wasn't that long ago. 24 months ago that we first uh, hit the airwaves uh, with the show. I want a big thank you to people who sent in some really nice notes already. Uh, Denny and Airdrie, Catherine and Surrey, uh, Vi and Edmonton, thank you for your kind words. We asked you what your favorite snacks were. Um, and uh, Mr. Noodles, Mr. Noodles, says Andrew in London. Those are pretty good. I kind of got through university on those. Uh, and Trucker Kevin, of course, loves his Hawkins cheesies. I hope I got that right. Yeah. I, I, that, yes. Yes. Trucker Kevin and his Hawkins cheesies. I think I knew that, Kevin. I think I knew that. Uh, we did a little bit about the history of uh, Hawkins cheesies in the last half hour with Janice Thiessen, who uh, was on the show in that first week talking about snacks. And to this day, I still get people commenting on that particular conversation about uh, the history of Canadian snacks, where they come from, and so on. Uh, so we thought we'd invite her back, and we did. Now, as you might expect, this career brings you a lot back alongside colleagues you've worked with for a great chunk of your time in this business. I believe the first time I ever met Jazz Joe Hall, or at least the most memorable time, uh, was when my colleague Barry Acton and I replaced Jazz and cameraman Jeff Stephen uh, in the early days of Canada's mission in Afghanistan. They were heading out, having spent a fair amount of time in Kandahar, because they looked like they had. Um, we met up in Kabul at uh, this pretty beautiful hotel called the Serena Hotel uh, in downtown Kabul. It would go on, of course, to be attacked many times. It would be the scene of a lot of violence, unfortunately. But at the time, things were still pretty quiet, except there was a little bit of a blip in that. Uh, Jazz and I would both uh, later end up overseas for Global National, Jazz based in Delhi, and me in Beijing. Here, by the way, just so we can, you know, we'll stoke some memories, stoke some memorabilia or some, some nostalgia here. Here's a piece I did in China on the rise of internet boot camps where parents were sending their addicted kids to try to force them offline, sometimes with tragic consequences. Here's a fact you might not know. China has the largest number of web surfers in the world, and it comes with its problems. Unbelievably, parents are sending their web-addicted children to a sort of internet boot camp, but the results have been deadly. Our Asia correspondent, Ben O'Hara-Byrne, with this disturbing story and a warning that some of the photos you're about to see are very graphic. 
there's little left that belonged to his teenage son in what was his old bedroom. But the computer, now unplugged, offers a clue to a father's tremendous pain and to the reasons why, until now, he hadn't set foot in this apartment for months. Yeah, that was a piece I did back in southern China, way back when. Now, one of the most memorable stories I remember Jazz doing uh, amongst his many while he was both in India and then later in Beijing was this incredible story about hockey in the Himalayas on the roof of the world. Between the mountains and monasteries of India lies one of the highest hockey rinks in the world and one of the most unlikely places to find our national sport. Our Jazz Joe Hall travels to the Himalayas where hockey is played 11,000 feet above sea level and where the sport is forging a cultural bond. It's known as the roof of the world. This is Leh, located in the Ladakh region of India known as Little Tibet a place where the daily rhythmic chants of Buddhists in an ancient monastery make time stand still. But if you listen, you'll hear a chant of a different kind. A game of outdoor hockey on a frozen pond. There you go. Jazz Joe Hall reporting from the Himalayas. Now, a lot has happened since those days more than a decade ago. Both of us, both of us, uh, we're there, and then now we're both here. That sounds a bit uh, a bit obvious. Uh, and yet, not long before I started this show, Jazz made his debut, or a return, I should say, to CKNW in Vancouver, where he hosts the Jazz Joe Hall Show weekday afternoon. So here we are, both again, and I thought on this second anniversary, who better to bring on? Who knows me better out here than, <laughs> than Jazz Joe Hall, my longtime colleague and friend. Jazz, thank you so much. Hey, my pleasure, and uh, congratulations to you and the crew. Uh, you know, putting a, a daily live radio show is a miracle every single time you do it. As you know. And as, as I know, but know. as you know very well uh, as, as well. And uh, I'm so incredibly proud of you and the team, uh, and most importantly, getting Canadians to talk to each other and listen to each other. Uh, a very complex time in our world and in this country. And and I just think you guys are doing a fabulous job. You know, as I was listening to you, a couple of things came to mind. You brought up the issue of Afghanistan and that uh, first yeah. time we had met. Uh, and uh, to add to that story, uh, I think we were heading out, as you said, and, and you were and uh, Barry Acton were heading into Kandahar, flying, I think it was on a UN flight into Kandahar. But we ended up going to a, a carpet shop and we bought a carpet. But, but a minute after we left that very shop, up across the street, uh, there was a suicide bomber and uh, there was much carnage. But that particular carpet that I bought, and my wife and I were just talking about that yesterday. She never liked it, actually. So oh, really? she was complaining about it yesterday. I have it at my home office and, and she just, I've never liked that, she says, but I refuse to give it up. So it's um, it's still there. But, you know, it, it is um, really amazing um, when we first met uh, as to how much um, the world has changed uh, in many ways. Some some ways stood still as well, but it, it is constantly evolving and changing. And, and in many ways, you think it's a different era when we were reporting, but it is so fast moving. It's very difficult sometimes every day to just to stay up sometimes. It is. And, you know, I, I had to look through YouTube to find those old stories that we had both did, <laughs> done for a show called 16 by 9 at the time, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, which was a really interesting thing because it allowed us not only to do our daily reporting for Global National, it also allowed us to do longer form stories such as that incredible story you did. I'll always remember that story that you did in the Him- about hockey in the Himalayas. I'm sure people still talk about it. Yeah, you know, that, that was a, f- a fun story because I heard it in passing from one of our uh, cameramen that I was talking to uh, who, was, who lives in India, and he was mentioning that uh, – 
somebody, uh, a bunch of Indians had gone to the Canadian High Commission in New Delhi trying to get a visa to India, and they said, look, we want to go buy hockey equipment because we can't buy it. And, and, the, and the Canadians at the High Commission, they said, what are you talking about? This has to be some sort of scam. Indians don't play hockey. And when they investigated, they realized this is the Kashmir part of India, northern India, that these folks do. And, and what happened was, is, is a, as you know, that is an area that uh, there is much dispute over the, the land there between Pakistan and India. But Indian army officers there uh, would use cricket pads as goalie pads, and then they would weld on the skate onto mil- old military boots. Uh, and so from there, when they found out, uh, every year, in fact, right about now, I think in about the third week of January, a group of Canadians from the Canadian High Commission there, but other Canadians who live and work in and around Asia, and some even from Canada, fly uh, to uh, northern India, and they play uh, in the area of Ladakh, this Buddhist area, beautiful area, beautiful monasteries. So about the third week of January, they, they, they go and play the Indian team up there, and it's a national championships, and they're, they're working towards building up an indoor arena, of course course. But a lot of it is still good old-fashioned pond hockey. And when we arrived, only one hotel at that point actually had uh, uh, internal heating. I mean, were, even the hotels didn't have heating up there. So it was one of my favorite stories as well, just because of the, the scenery uh, and the simplicity and just the beautiful people up there. And it speaks to, you know, uh, hockey being a Canadian game and how far it does reach uh, and, and, and sort of build connection around the world. I, I, I still have that, those images of those monasteries and the great people seared in my mind. It was, it was so much fun. Yeah, we used to do stories like that, obviously. I mean, there was always an appetite back home for stories along those lines. And at one point, I went up way up north in China, right onto the Russian border. I mean, we mm-hmm. think Canada is cold. This place was freezing. Eastern, I think it was called. We went there to see them building the biggest curling rink in China. <laughs> because, of course, China had done well at the Olympics in curling. There was a bit more of, uh, thanks to the you know some Canadian coaching, no doubt. But there was a big interest in curling in China. And all of a sudden, of course, now who did they bring in to build this thing? Canadians, right? So we went up there to do this story, and it was just the you know it was the it was a really cool thing. You know, I, I thought think back to those days. I understand the economics of the business has changed mm-hmm. dramatically since we got to do that. But those are the stories that don't get told anymore because we don't have that kind of presence abroad anymore, unfortunately. It, and, and 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 the sad part of it is sad part of it is that. Those regions, uh, as you and I have reported many times, were growing and continue to grow, even though there's some challenges before China now economically. But, you know, between those two nations alone, we were talking about China and India, that's 40 percent of humanity. Uh, and and I, if, I look, if I look at the stats now, um, I think in the next 18 months, India will be the fourth largest economy in the world, surpassing uh, Germany. 18 months after that, it'll be the third largest economy in the world, surpassing uh, Japan. Uh, so India marches on and the hopes and dreams and aspirations of Asians, which collectively represent 60% of humanity, are still, I believe, for this first half century, the story of our time. It's not Ukraine, which is of the moment and very important. And of course, it's happening in Israel and and, and with Hamas. Uh, But the true story is the rise of this other part of the world. And we do need to learn more about it, not just on an economic terms, not just in regards to these countries that have a huge population. These are, in the case of India and China, these are civilizations rising, but not just those countries. Think of Indonesia, think of the Thailands, think of the Vietnams. We already know what Korea has accomplished, what uh, uh, Japan has accomplished and continues to do so. So uh, you're absolutely right. And we are a smaller world because of 
the internet, uh, but we are not seeing those specific stories, the humanity in people, the struggles that are still before uh, many people in China. You can talk about the Communist Party, you can talk about Xi Jinping, you can talk about foreign interference in Canada, but there's this whole swath of people, tens of millions of people still struggling uh, to be part of that great uh, economic um, wave that we've talked about, the growing China, growing India. There's so many stories and struggles that we need to lo- know more about because it's not like those two countries are going away or Asia is going away. We actually have to understand not the black and whites of the world, but the nuances, the subtleties, the grays. Uh, and I think that's what's lost when networks um, lose correspondence globally. That's what we lose when we don't tell those stories because we have to understand not just the business side of things or the the, the, the finance side of things, but more the humanity of people and the struggles that they're going through in China and India and Indonesia, whether it be Israel or Palestine. And I do worry not only just for the business, but more so just the ability to talk to each other and understand each other and learn from each other. Uh, and I'm not sure where we're going to end up five years from now or 10 years from now if every bureau is closed, uh, especially for a nation like Canada. Uh, But I do, you know, when I look back, I I cherish that time. I cherish those memories because it was such a unique period for for both of us, but also for Canadian uh, network television. And I'm not sure where this business is going. Technology will play a big role, uh, but we still must continue to strive to tell those stories because it's so vitally important in, uh, you know, a shrinking globe, but a globe that sometimes doesn't listen to each other very well. Yeah, not one of the foreign bureaus I worked in is still open uh, these days at, uh, at either network that I worked for while I was overseas, unfortunately. And and it's true. I mean, clearly the difference is, you know, between China and India, uh, China sort of expelled all the all the reporters that were there. There are very few left, not because organizations don't want to be in China, but because the Chinese don't necessarily want them there. Uh, but we do miss something. It feels like all of a sudden we get we get very tunneled visioned about things, about, about when we don't show those people-to-people stories. And I thought that was the great privilege and the great work that you did overseas, whether it was during the Afghanistan conflict or your time in India or later your time in Beijing, my time in Beijing uh, and later in, in Europe was was being able to show those people stories because, you know, being able to go out there and tell a story from a Canadian angle, I always thought brought something to the table that's missing. Uh, and, and I think we see it, you know, we see it across the board these days. You know, when we talk about how all international politics becomes domestic, part of that is mm-hmm. because we don't see ourselves reflected in those international stories the way we used to. I think you raise a very good point. Think of uh, just uh, the, the, the the uh, the assassination of a of a care of the president of a, a local Sikh temple here in the Vancouver mm-hmm. suburb of Surrey, uh, or think of uh, the foreign uh, influence uh, conversation we've been having the last eighteen months in regards to China, uh, and there's so many other conversations that we need to be continuing to to have. I just find. Also with journalism, um, you know, it's the experience you as a young journalist from local news going on to global news, you know, in international uh, news coverage. It's that institutional knowledge that you bring to your conversations every day, Ben. But it's that same conversation you will pass along to young reporters and young producers. I feel a lot of that is missing. And when you look at an issue today, you don't only look at it through the lens of a national show, but you look at look at it through the lens of working in Europe, working in Asia. You have a perspective. 
we increasingly lose those people in journalism, and if we don't have enough of them, it impacts our coverage, our institutional knowledge. It also impacts what we pass along to the next generation of journalists and producers and content creators. And I feel that's what's lost, uh, which I think matters even more today. I mean, you know, China's not going anywhere. India's not going anywhere. Asia's not going anywhere. The challenges of the Middle East are not going anywhere. And we need to do a better job of understanding each other. The distribution networks have gotten better. You can watch yeah. on your phone. You can watch on your iPad. You can watch on your big screen. It's Do you remember just... traveling through Kabul in the middle of the night trying to feed a store? <laughs> I mean, I remember that. It was, it was terrifying. <laughs> I remember the, 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 the biggest challenge I think we had was um, when we got in through, uh, I think it was um, Tunisia, getting into uh, Libya. Uh, right. And uh, it took us a full day just because, first of all, you have to negotiate with the rebels because the government all government had fallen apart. That night, I believe, Muammar Gaddafi had fled just as we were kind of getting into Tripoli. Uh, and we had to feed a story. We were shooting along the way. And we just didn't have access to AC power, just basic power. And I remember Barry Yakton editing the story. And and he said, look, you can do one on camera, but it, you better nail it because we're going to run out of power. And I did it, thank God. And then he edited it and we fed it through a pizza-sized satellite dish at the time. Um, but what was really amazing, we didn't have AC power. We ran it through the Apple computer power that, that he had. And it was just enough to get the thing up to the satellite yeah. down into Toronto, into Vancouver. And it worked fine. But, uh, you know, this was all while gunfire is going off around us. And all the the last bar on your phone. There'll be a little birthday celebration on the show tonight. It is the second birthday of A Little More Conversation. It was on this day back in 2022 that the show debuted. Uh, it had been a long time since I'd done a full-on radio show, years as a matter of fact. I mean, I'd done radio as a guest. I'd done a couple of guest hosting things over the years, but it had been a long time. And of course, uh, we have Jazz Joe Hall with us at this half hour uh, celebrating alongside. I've known Jazz for years. We've been colleagues for years. We're colleagues again. He's host of the Jazz Joe Hall Show weekdays on CKNW. Uh, Chorus Radio in Vancouver. Jazz, I, I was, you know, I was thinking back to this night two years ago, and maybe your first show was the same, but wow, it was a wake-up call. Wow. It's, I mean, radio <laughs> never sounds easy, and I always always known had a lot of respect for people who do this job really well, but I was like, wow, three hours is an awfully long time. No. Well, we come from the TV world where uh, you have obviously have to meet deadlines like radio, but you have very specific times that you have to hit. It's shorter, it's tighter, it's faster, and then you're done. And in radio, it's much more of a much, you know, it's much more of a Longer conversation gives you more time to breathe, uh, much more audience interaction as well. Uh, and like you, I've been a guest on many a time on shows as, as a reporter, certainly. Uh, but that's where you're conveying information. Here, you're not only just doing interviews, but in my case, on afternoon drive time show, you have to be serious. You have to be a little bit light. There's lots of things going on. You got about ten things you're juggling. Uh, and there's always never enough time. Actually, come to think of it, when you've got so many interesting guests and that sort of thing, but it, it's a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun. That's one thing. Uh, I was uh, talking to my uh, wife the other day about this. I said, you know, if you gauge this job in regards to what you do every day, it's a lot of work, uh, a lot of time that you have to fill, but what a privilege to be able to have a conversation with so many different, interesting people and then engage with the public as well in regards to their thoughts and opinions on a a variety of issues. Uh, It is really a privilege at the end of the day. But what I find, especially at this stage of my career, I'm having a lot of fun. I don't know about you, but I'm really enjoying it. It's great. 
I mean, it's great because you're right. For years, the problem with being a TV reporter or a TV anchor for that matter is so much is left unsaid. I mean, you're whittling down huge international stories to like two minutes. Mm-hmm. I used to be able to write anything in a minute 50 at one point in my career. <laughs> and, 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 and you left so much out. There was so much context that you wanted to add that you didn't. And what I love about this job and the people I get to talk to, even the conversation we're having, is you get to put a lot of meat on the bone. You get to really you know, flesh things out. And I think that's the, a privilege, especially these days. It's such a privilege to be able to dig into a topic that interests you, talk to someone who knows a ton about it, find out something you didn't know, and you know, and and, and share that with an audience who are also eager to learn and listen as well. It is it, you realize the power of the voice, the power of a question, the power of simply just pausing and saying nothing. And what you can do with that. And so it's a, a different skill set. Uh, but I also think that, you know, both of us have been very fortunate uh, to see the world uh, and to report on those events. We can use those skills, that experience. And it comes in handy when you can call out silliness from an elected official uh, or for somebody else who may be commenting on other parts of the world that you and I have covered or events that you've covered and provide some context in regards to uh, to, to what is happening. You know, uh, Technology comes and goes, uh, and radio uh, has been very good uh, in regards to surviving, in regards to staying connected to the audience. Uh, And of course, this industry has changed in many ways. I started in radio, well, back in the early 1990s now. um, But the core issue of storytelling, of connecting is still there. Uh, And that's what I so much enjoy about it. Uh, As well, I just think that we have so much to talk about uh, every single day. The world may be a smaller place, but the stories are all there, but it's much more complex We uh, because we are so interconnected now than perhaps we were even were 30 years ago when I first got into this business. So uh, it has been an absolute pleasure and it is an absolute pleasure to continue to do what you and I both do and, and especially in your context for yourself, you get to speak to Canadians because it is so unique. I mean, I cover a Metro Vancouver and BC context mostly, although we have national guests. You connect people from BC right across this country uh, and I could imagine the perspective you get uh, because what we think is important here, it's a whole lot different in Toronto or Calgary or wherever uh, your good audience is listening to us today. It is. It is. I mean, it, you, three hours used to feel really long and now it feels really short. Jazz, thank you so much for sharing uh, the A Little More Conversation birthday with me tonight. I appreciate it. Happy birthday, my friend. Like so many reporters, if you don't know this, I cut my teeth in local news. First in sort of Sherbrooke, which is outside of Montreal, then in Montreal, then in Toronto. And for a lot of it, I covered a lot of crime. They called me Bad News Ben in the newsroom when I was younger, if you can imagine. Uh, And it was a moniker that stuck for a while. I managed to shake it eventually. Uh, But I've always had an interest in reporting about crime, specifically the impact that it has on communities, the way it shapes the way people see themselves, and the impact that it has on the victims as well, right? And so when I was in Portugal just recently, uh, we spent some time in the south, an area known as the Algarve. And it's a hugely popular spot for uh, tourists from other parts of Europe, Britain, and around the world. But when we were on the train going to where we were staying, uh, I spotted some names on the station map that reminded me of perhaps the most covered and noted child disappearance of this century, one that I covered quite a bit of on the anniversaries uh, when I was based in London. It's been nearly 17 years now 
since the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. She vanished from a holiday apartment at a resort in the Portuguese town of Praia de Luz, which is uh, just in, really in the town of Lagos in the Algarve in the south of the country on the evening of May 3rd, 2007, just nine days before her fourth birthday. Her parents had been having dinner nearby with several others that they were there on holiday with and returned to their apartment to find that Madeleine was no longer in her bed. By the next day, her disappearance had become headline news in Britain, Portugal, and soon the world would see the photos of that young girl. I wonder if you can even, I can still picture her in that little soccer jersey that she was wearing. Uh, It was as if she had just vanished into thin air. Her parents, Kate and Jerry McCann, spoke to the media just 24 hours after she disappeared. Words cannot describe the anguish and despair that we are feeling as the parents of our beautiful daughter, Madeline. We request that anyone who may have any information related to Madeline's disappearance, no matter how trivial, contact the Portuguese police and help us get her back safely. Please, if you have Madeline, let her come home to her mummy, daddy, brother and sister. Like most missing children's cases, even despite the massive attention that this one got, much beyond, I mean, kids disappear every day, right? And this was just unprecedented, the amount of attention this this case was getting. Uh, It was expected that perhaps we'd have answers pretty quick. And speculation ran rampant. At one point, the parents were suspects. I mean, it went on and on and on. The tabloids talked about it for years in in Britain. Uh, The parents, in fact, would receive an official apology uh, eventually. For being, uh, for being even targeted at one point. Uh, theories ran from a bungled burglary, abduction by a pedophile ring, the list goes on. There have been appeals over the years from the parents and others for information. I covered those when I was in England, uh, when I was working at a London. Age progression photos released regularly. She'd be 20 now, I believe. The British government invested heavily in a UK initiative called Project Grange to re-examine evidence in the case. But as the 10-year anniversary arrived back in 2017, the mystery remained unsolved for the McCanns. It's a huge amount of time and in some ways it feels like it was only a few weeks ago and other times it's felt really long. Um, but it's a hard marker of time. Yeah, I think before Madeline was taken we felt we'd managed to achieve a little perfect nuclear family of five. Every day is another day without Madeline. Um, I think it's just that number, it's that 10 year mark which makes it more significant. You know, But there's still hope that we can find Madeline. And here we are in 2024, and the mystery remains, although there have been breakthroughs in the last couple of years. John Clark is a journalist based in southern Spain and publisher of the Olive Press. Back in May of 2007, he was working for the UK's Mail on Sunday, and he would be one of the first, if not the first, reporter to arrive at the scene of Madeline's disappearance. He would cover the case for years, culminating in a book called My Search for Madeline, where he also spends a lot of time looking into the history uh, of the movements of a suspect who's now been named in this case by German police. And uh, John Clark joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hello, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Take me back to that day in 2007, because I struggle to remember ever seeing a case that was so broadly talked about so quickly, the case of a missing child, so talked about so quickly, especially one abroad. Yeah, I mean, it certainly took me by surprise. Uh, I've been uh, based in Spain for not too long, and uh, I got a very, very early call from the mail foreign desk in England, and I was a stringer for the mail back then. And uh, 
you know, sort of dragged out of bed at the, the, some ungodly hour and said, listen, you've got to get down to Portugal. There's a girl gone missing, a British girl gone missing. And I was just like, you know, really, who is it? She said, oh, it's a toddler it's in a place called Pradaluge. Just get going. And I was like, oh, you know, okay, fine. So I think, you know, I was up and out of the house within 15, 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, when I got there, um, it's sort of nine-ish in the morning. And... I, you know, I had no idea really, uh, you know, what this was about and who she was, who the family was. And I only had the scantest details given to me on routes. When I arrived, there were very few people, there was a few police and a few people milling around. And as I said, I, as far as I'm aware, I was the first journalist there, certainly the first UK journalist there, British uh, UK national newspaper journalist there. And, uh, you know, I just sort of went straight about my reporting, you know, went went up did all the basic checks, asked the police what was going on and walked up the steps uh, to the apartment and, and, and had a very, very brief chat with uh, the parents who were heading off to the police station to do an official missing persons report. I just said, look, you know, I'm, I'm here for the mail. I'm going to do my best to see if I can help you find your daughter. I, I just expected her to, to have turned up. I expected her to have either been found dead or, you know, something to have happened by the time I got there. But of course she, she hadn't turned up and, I then spent the next, I don't know, five, six, seven hours traipsing around. I, because I'm not a news, because I'm not a television journalist, I didn't have to stand outside. You know, mm. I'm more of a Sunday newspaper journalist, print. So I, I just went off and just started walking around, looking for possibilities. Had she walked up here? Had she gone down there? Could she have fallen in the pool here? Had she fallen into a, there some roadworks? I think it was at some point during the kind of afternoon that it started to dawn on me and, and most of the other people who were arriving that, that she'd probably been abducted. Because I've done these you stories, know. and of course, nine, 99% of the time, everything works out, right? That Usually the child is found. It's it's a pretty quick thing. The other thing that, that, that always surprised me is just how quickly this became a huge story. I mean, you were there, I think, if I do the math, less than 12 hours after she disappeared from this apartment. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. About about 12 hours afterwards. I mean, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's obviously the golden hour is so vitally important. And it was very clear that, that they'd been shambolic to start with. And, you know, despite the conspiracy theorists, I mean, there had been the, the chief of police hadn't turned up till very late. He was at some sort of party. And, you know, they hadn't closed the roads. They hadn't, the video cameras weren't working on the motorway, the one that goes all the way up the Algarve into Spain. And I hadn't, I didn't traipse into the apartment. I got to the door, didn't walk in, but apparently 26 or 27 people had been in and out of that apartment, traipsing around, you know, between the hours of some 9.30 at night and, and you know, six in the morning. And it's, it was just like before they actually properly closed it and made it a proper crime scene, you know, you, you straight away got a sense of chaos. And, and as you say, most of the time, nine times of the time, the kid turns up, something's found and they know what it is. And but this was one of those occasions when it was fairly clear that something pretty dark had happened. And I, I think the full severity of it the full horror of it really came to pass that night when i remember going i finally went and checked into my hotel i don't know six ish or something like that and uh booked in and i came back to to the ocean club apartments and there was a press conference outside and it was already really quite dark and there was a little sort of anticipation in the air and by then most of the journalists had arrived from england or certainly quite a few from france portugal and perhaps some from spain and you know, there must have been, I'd say, 30, 40, 50 journalists at this point. This is the first night, you know, the, the 24 hours after she'd gone missing. And it was at that point when, 
you know, Jerry and Kate came out of their apartment and walked down the steps and gave this press conference that you realised just the, you know, the sheer anxiety on their faces, the, the tension, you know, the fear that they'd gone through, that their daughter had been abducted, that you realised, you know, hell, this is, this is, this is true, you know, this is terrific, you know. And Yeah, Madeline's parents. This was rare in Portugal, you mentioned, too, that this was not the way uh, missing children were usually. This amount of publicity this early on was not how police treated missing children cases in uh, in Portugal. Never. No, they never gave press conferences, never did things like this before. It's all done quietly behind the scenes. But, you know, full credit to the, to the McCanns. And, of course, I think they may maybe slightly regret it now, but they got on to contacts of theirs back in the UK. They'd managed to get uh, get it onto national TV. It was on the news bulletins early on. Sky News had it early on that morning. And, you know, then it spread very quickly. It, may, it probably was a relatively quiet news day. And I think just by nature, the fact that they were doctors on holiday in a very quiet part of Europe, very pretty young girl. And, you know, and I think it just, just sort of struck a chord, you know, that this could be anyone, you know, they were on a, you know, a random sort of tennis holiday with, with the three other couples and, uh, you know, there were seven totals of them and they were on a sort of tennis holiday, sports holiday with their, with their young toddlers and kids. And, you know, it's just, how could this happen? You know, especially because it was a. I don't know if you if you remember Ben. You lived in Europe for seven years. Remember Mark Warner was a really established brand that took people very middle and upper middle class people on holidays. It cost quite a lot of money, and you just kind of couldn't quite comprehend how a Mark Warner holiday didn't have any security could have allowed this to happen somehow. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I just feel you know your heart goes out to them. If anybody can imagine that they lost a child, you know, it's heartbreaking, and I just. Uh, Hope that someday they find her. John Clark is with us on a little more true crime. We're talking about the perhaps the uh, most noteworthy or at least the most publicized child disappearance of this century. Madeleine McCann, the young British girl on holiday with her parents in southern Portugal, in the Algarve, a town called Praia da Luz, when she disappeared seemingly into thin air. She was asleep in an apartment. The parents were across the way with other couples eating. And when they came back, she was gone and she has not been seen since. We we don't really know exactly what happened to her to this day, uh, 17 years, nearly 17 years later. John, tell me a bit about the initial investigation because you, you described how chaotic it was off the get-go. But but there was a sense, I think, from a lot of people who covered this early on, that there were some real problems with the way this investigation was being carried out. Yeah, well, for, for, first of all, Ben, should I say congratulations on your pronunciation because Pradaluj, you said it very well. And uh, I think, you know, I, I'd certainly never even heard of it. And uh, I've been to Portugal a number of times on jobs and, and lived in, in southern Spain, been travelled down southern Spain a number of times. And I, I, I'd never heard of this sleepy little village. And I think when you when you look at its location next to Sagres, which is the most western tip of Europe, it's kind of quite a famous wave down there for surfers, Right out the way, it sort of explains in a way why it was so chaotic. This is the real backwater. It's somewhere where, you know, on the face of it, you'd assume there was very little crime, that you'd assume that it was, you know, it was a very safe place to go on holiday with your children. You could pretty much leave your doors unlocked and wander around and not have to watch your children or indeed your your belongings or your car. As I know, having investigated this for many years, my God, you would have got that badly wrong. It's This was a hotbed. This There were 600 people drawn up on a list of possible suspects, sex offenders, paedophiles, criminals of all shape or form, more around Europe living in this paradise, a paedophile's paradise that 
you know, the, the Portuguese themselves admitted they had the country with the biggest sort of loosest uh, laws preventing sex offenders um, from being imprisoned. At the time in 2007, remarkably, you could be sitting in a cafe with a laptop open looking at child pornography in the Algarve and not be found guilty of any crime. When there was a girl abused on a beach one month before Madeleine went missing, just six miles away from, from Pradeluge, a place, place called Zalema, when the parents, who were German, had gone to make an official complaint to the local police station, the, the guy in charge, was, you know, there was a 10-year-old daughter who'd been abused, and the guy in charge just sort of wrote this down, did nothing. Next day, the inspector came in, had a look at it. They even said exactly where it happened. They said they saw a man walking away. They saw him exactly what he looked like, gave a perfect description of what he looked like. He was wearing no clothes. Do you know what? The police the inspector at this police station just looked at it and said, not worth it and immediately spiked it and stuck it in a file to right. not go any further. So, so you think they were hardwired hard not to take the Madeline disappearance particularly seriously right off the get-go? They were the, That was a was month to... before, a month yeah. before. It just goes to show that when Madeline went missing, they immediately assumed she must be about to turn up or the parents had done something. I mean, they, they it just to them, it wasn't seen as a very serious crime. I, you know, I still think to this day, it's not seen as a very serious crime in Portugal, you know. Well, and... The, parent, uh, you know, the parents come under a lot of suspicion early on, right? I mean, I, I remember distinctly thinking about seeing the stories. I, I think I was in, in still back in Canada at the time um, that, that the stories focused a lot on the parents. And there was always this sort of air of suspicion. And I think the police in Portugal were the ones who had sort of <laughs> put them there. But but there was this air of suspicion around Kate and Jerry McCann. I think if you uh, watch a recent documentary um, with um, a journalist called Sandra Felgueras, who was there on the first day, she's a well-known Portuguese TV journalist now, she says that she was fed a series of stories by the then inspector at the time, by called Gonzalo Amaral, that who was in charge of the investigation. She was fed a series of false stories about the family and what they're up to and the parents and they were a drip, drip number of stories that went in the Portuguese press that, you know, assumed that the parents must be guilty without any real understanding of the geography or who they were or where they were, the time of year. Uh, you know, it's, and like Ben, it's logical, isn't it? You know, when a child goes missing, when a child's been abused or something, you know, you obviously look at the family first. You look at the close friends. It's logical. Um, but you also have to bear in mind you've got three couples, three and a half, three couples and another friend, all, all seven of them doctors working on a holiday together and with their kids. And, you know, it's just not the sort of demographic of people who are going to do this. And yeah. it doesn't really you know, add up. It doesn't really add up. I mean, where, where, would the, where, where was she? If that was the case, where was she? Right. Well, I, I, I immediately wrote sort of early on that it was no way I said a paedophile snatched Madeline. And I did it a year after her anniversary. I wrote a piece in my paper, the Olive Press, here about that. I got a lot of stick from various people saying, oh, Peter Pass, don't snatch children. It's all made up. It's all lies. The parents did it. So, no, no, it's, it, you know, the timing, there wasn't enough time for Jerry McCann to get back and do it. It was far too hot there to go and bury her. She'd have to bought a spade, a shovel, whatever he was going to get to dig into the ground. It hadn't rained for a month and a half or two months. It was rock hard, boiling hot. He didn't know the area. He didn't have a car. There was a suggestion that maybe they moved into another apartment and kept her body in a freezer, you know, in, uh, yeah. in, in the same block 
for, for sort of four weeks or five weeks until they rented the car and they could then drive the body and bury it somewhere, you know, apparently when they were going to Fatima inland to meet, to meet, uh, to go to this church. I mean, there was so many oh, there was, bizarre uh, theories. For the inquiry and the investigation team, this is a significant development. Um, we are, uh, we've been working on this line of inquiry um, for a couple of years. Um, he came into the inquiry in 2017 following the appeal um, or the interview with Mark Rowley, uh, the AC at the time. As a result of that, um, information came into the inquiry and the investigation team. We did some work around that um, and uh, identified this male. This male, um, and I'm going to describe him because it's part of the appeal, um, he is a German national. He's currently in a German prison for an unrelated matter. John Clark is with us on A Little More True Crime. We're talking about the highly publicized, perhaps one of the most uh, covered child disappearances of this century, certainly one of the most high-profile ones in my memory, that of Madeleine McCann, the three-year-old British girl who disappeared from a department in a resort in southern Portugal in the Algarve. It's a popular uh, destination for, for families and people right across Europe, and particularly in the UK. And so her disappearance in May of 2007 was really something that captured uh, the attention, not just of the British press and the British public, but ended up becoming a worldwide story. You probably remember those images of Little Madeline. I believe it's in an Everton, blue Everton jersey. And you can sort of picture that image of her because it was shown so often. Well, that was many years ago now, nearly 17 years ago. We don't really know. We still don't know what really know what happened to her. That being said, there have been a number of different investigative or investigative uh, paths that have been opened over the years, including one in Britain called Operation Grange. But it was German police who came out with a suspect and with a narrative around this story that seemed to make a lot of sense, particularly to John, who had covered this for a very long time. Uh, John, tell me a bit about about Christian B and and the German police and how that sort of unfolded, because it felt like for a very long time we saw the annual appeals from the McCanns, holding out hope that she may still be alive, but very little movement on what could have happened to her. And then suddenly it all changed. Very much, Ben. Uh, it was... I think the story was slowly petering out and, you know, we'd probably feature in the Olive Press once a year around the time of her disappearance in May. And then I think in 2019, there'd been some suggestions that there might have been a German paedophile sex offender who, who could have been linked or was linked to the case. And in fact, the ex-inspector, although he was taken off the case and quite disgraced by it, uh, it's fairly obvious that uh, he's got very good connections and people are tipping him off on what's going on because he clearly knew a lot of what was happening. Anyway, suddenly in June 2020, we had this amazing announcement from the German uh, BKA that they had a suspect um, in the Madeleine McCann case. And they believed that uh, a German man was responsible for her abduction and death and murder. And they didn't release his name initially, but um, they explained that he was uh, a man, a German in his 40s, and he had um, previous convictions. In fact, he had 17. They gave some photographs of the inside of an apartment or house they believed that may be significant that, that to the inquiry. And that was that. We just started digging around into who this guy was. And eventually, the next morning, early the next morning, we found his um, yellow farmhouse just outside Pradaluche. We Everyone calls it the yellow house. We got there and we spoke to a couple of neighbours and we asked um, 
one of the neighbors, German neighbor, who, and she said it was a charming guy. He was very lovely. He used to go for coffees with him, a guy called Christian. And then we sort of went to the house and looked around. It was really quite spooky. It run down. It hadn't been painted in ages. And of course, the owner hadn't been over for some time. And there was a big well in the garden and, you know, your mind boggled. And we must have looked through the window and the door and you could see the fireplace or the area. It looked, this was obviously clearly the place where they'd had these pictures had been released from the police. Right. And so, you know, it was fascinating. Everyone was sort of trying to piece together what on earth, who this guy was, what he was doing at the time, what he was up to, who his friends were, you know, and as a journalist, that, you just go off and you, you all the classic questions and right. knock did this, every did single Did this theory make sense and... to you, John? Is, is this a theory that when you heard this from German police, because clearly, I mean, that's actually quite a bit of information they gave out compared to what you usually get at those kinds of press conferences. Was this a theory that made sense to you when you heard it? Yeah, it made a lot of sense. Immediately made sense to me. It, this guy, the house, the, the geography, the location of the farmhouse just outside the village, looking down over Pradeluge. At the time, we didn't know that he'd been found guilty and convicted two years earlier of raping a 71-year-old American woman in Pradeluge on the direct uh, path into Pradeluge from his farmhouse. And we didn't know this at the time. This came out uh, a week or so later. Because right. he's but, in jail, uh, right? He's in jail. That was, he's that was, in jail uh, now. Yeah. And for that for that uh, crime, he got seven years for that. And he'll serve all that. It, it, it made sense because they said that his phone had been used at the scene in and around the time that Madeline went missing. Um, I think it was about 7.30 or thereabouts his phone. He was on a long phone call for about half an hour to another number. Both of them were burner burner phones and the police were appealing for who the other number was. And they know that, that he was around at that time because of uh, basically he, he was connected to a birthday party with some friends. They know certainly it was in his hand and no one else's right. hands. Uh, but they don't know who the other person he was talking to. So they, they gave out the other number and they say so far they don't know who had that other phone. But they know that he'd been speaking in and around Pradeluge, around the Ocean Club area that evening. So he was definitely in the right vicinity. Now, bearing in mind he's got three or four convictions for child sex abuse. He's got convictions for serious sadistic rapes of the worst calibre. He also was on a list of that 600 uh, people, I think, that, right. at the beginning. At least the Portuguese police say he was. I think that's – I've never seen proof of that. And if and they he was did, a thief they, too, right? Was he not a home? Like he, he, he had spent time sort of breaking into people's homes too, right? He, he was a very, very prolific thief. And uh, I've spoken to three or four of his friends who all tell me he was the best uh, cat burglar there is. He could climb up three, four stories in, in a matter of minutes. He was amazing at getting in and out of homes. He had a skeleton key that could get him into apartments. You know, he, he was an incredible burglar. And in fact, he said to to, to M Michael Tatchell, one of his flatmates who lived with him at the time in the Yellow House, he said that uh, you know he hoped to make a million from whatever he could. He, he was he even said that he would prepare to sell children to Morocco to make money. You know, he he was uh, he spent a lot of time looking at child pornography and involved in that. And this is what this is fairly you know what I've established from you know three years now of research, but first of all, for my book, and now I'm going to have a second book coming out after the forthcoming trial, that this is a guy, this is the last person you want living in your town. And the very most scary guy you could possibly come across. Now, of course, you're going to say, well, what, even so, what proof is there that he snatched Madeline? My message is to anybody that has information, 
did, did he speak to you in confidence and tell you what happened that night? And that is my message. Um, and the message really is associated with the fact he is currently in prison um, and this might be a good time, this is a good time to come forward and talk to whether it's the UK police, whether it's the German police or the Portuguese police. John Clark is with us. He is a journalist based in southern Spain. He is from the UK originally, uh, one of the very first journalists, if not the first, on scene uh, in May 2007 in Praia de Luz uh, when young Madeleine McCann, the three-year-old British girl, went missing. That case is perhaps one you've heard of. It was a worldwide story. What had happened to her exactly? You know, there was much speculation about it. But until German police came out uh, about three years ago, four years ago, to make an announcement that they'd identified a potential suspect in this case, there'd been very little movement in the case. Now, Christian B uh, has been identified by German police. And as John has been pointing out, uh, they released some details about why they thought that was the case. Some evidence they wanted uh, checked out on. If there was anyone out there at information, uh, John took that and then went to dig into it. So, so John, what is the, what? Where does the evidence point to in this case that that he abducted her uh, and then uh, and then what? Well, so so I mean, first of all, I should point out the British police, uh, long established uh, back in the case review, which was brought on by the British Prime Minister, that, that that she was almost certainly abducted. They had a pretty good idea about the abductor and what he looked like and. As it turned out, uh, a very good acquaintance of Christian B, a guy called um, Helga Bushing, he actually phoned the British police and indeed the Portuguese police back in 2007 to say that he believed um, Christian B was was the man who snatched Madeleine. In fact, at a festival in Orkiva here in in Andalusia, not far from uh, where I live, he confessed to Helga that uh, he'd snatched her and exactly pretty much said she hadn't screamed out and Helga understood that he was confessing as best as possible what happened to, to Maddie that night. I think he'd potentially came in to burgle the property. I'm, I'm, there were two theories. One is that he was watching property. Uh, it was easy to watch. It was a very open apartment. It was easy to, to sit in the public roads and spy and watch. She was a pretty girl. There were people outside in the week before standing around looking people who matched his description and i think there's there's a very likely that that she could have been snatched by him to possibly to order possibly because because he fancied it also the theory that he because he's a, such a uh, um, a good burglar and uh he was so capable he could have broken in to, to to burgle the house and of course she might have woken up he might have seen her and got and you know his his fantasy's got the better of him and he just snatched her there's a possibility that uh, he may have used some sort of date rate drug or to, to some sort of drug to muzzle her, to knock her out. This may be why the twins, you may have heard she had two twins in the flat with her. They slept all night, didn't wake up despite all the furore, never woke up once. And you do wonder why, well, perhaps the, he sprayed some sort of, I don't know, mace or something in the room or one of these products, uh, you know, chemical, you know, um, gasoline type products. What the German police say is that she, she was taken by him, put into a car and driven away. I've looked at so many theories. I've driven around large parts of Portugal, visiting people who claim they saw her and him in the days and weeks afterwards. We looked into a, a big paedophile network in Tomar, which is a university town about two and a half hours north uh in portugal um we think that there's a chance he went there that night a, a girlfriend of his an ex-girlfriend of his said that he was coming back from tomar the next morning in his huge van now of course we also know from this girlfriend's father that he said himself that he had a van that had a space small enough in it 
to smuggle small children. Mm. So, you know, this is something that that we know that this is a man who travels around. It was a big. He took a lot of drugs backwards and forwards through Europe. He's got a lot of drugs convictions. We now know that he was buying and selling a lot of marijuana and, and drugs and transporting it around in very big vans, Winnebago's. So, you know, was he moving other children? Was he smuggling other children? Was he, you know, he, he was certainly closely connected to a, an orphanage network, uh, an orphan group that was bringing children over from Germany to have holidays in Portugal, y- young children who were supposed to give them a new life, children who'd been abused, who'd been beaten, who'd had very uh, sad upbringings, who were coming to Portugal to be looked after. And it was just a tire racket bringing thousands of children over a number of years. It was a complete scam, the whole thing from start to finish. And, of course, who's right in the centre of this but Christian B? Right. Um, Does, he so, deny, you know, Does he deny any involvement with the Madeleine McCann disappearance still? He entirely denies it. He entirely denies it, says it's absolutely nonsense, it's really unfair. He, he said he's got a, a perfectly good alibi. He said there was a girl he was seeing at the time. But actually, critically, and this is where... Hans Christian Bolters, the prosecutor, told me she she actually wasn't with him and says very clearly she wasn't with him on that night. Um, so the so-called alibi, he just hasn't got it. He hasn't got right. one. Where does this uh, go from here legally? Well, first of all, uh, next month, uh, February the 16th, we've got a trial, five other cases that uh, Christian B is linked to. And I think the, the concept or the thinking here is let's get these cases over the line. One of them is an absolute slam dunk. He was found with his trousers down in a children's play park at one in the morning in Portugal in 2017. He was found to be on the run. He was arrested by an off-duty plainclothes uh, policewoman. You know, the parents, it, that, that should be an absolute slam dunk. Secondly, there's another Irish girl, Hazel Bean, who's a wonderful, wonderful girl who happened to be working nearby in Pradaluce in a place called Portimao. A year before um, Maddie went missing, she was very badly raped. It's absolutely certain that he did it and was given very good evidence. And there's lots of evidence and witnesses that suggest that uh, Christian B was her attacker, that's the second case. There's, there's been other cases, as I said, the girl one month before on the beach um, in Zalema Beach. Right. That, that girl there, the you family. Think that was, all, we think that was him. We think that was that him. Was, that was him. That was indeed him, yeah. And uh, he was appearing, he's been charged with that, and he will face charges, uh, I think it's middle of April, the family. The, the girl who was abused, plus her brother, plus her parents, who had, it's broad daylight, 3.30 in the afternoon, perfect view of this man, perfect uh, description to police. Um, he, he'll be facing that charge. And, of course, there's two other charges which come on videos which were taken from his house, the Yellow House, when he was in prison. These two videos that he filmed, one of which he actually takes his hat off during the during this rape video that he made, and you can see his face. And he, he this was seen by a number of people who are going to be giving evidence in court next month. Uh, in fact, it's over the next from February through till um, through till May. Right. And um, they will be giving evidence about these videos that Christian B made that show a clear sort of big diversity from the norm, a quite a sort of strange right. degenerate. But, but no uh, charges. Uh, of, no charges in the McCann case, as far as Christian B is concerned, just yet. We haven't seen any charges laid against him. 
so so the that will that's continuing the investigation it will follow on straight afterwards and um you may or may not know the portuguese police have now made him an official suspect mm -hmm. so he's officially now uh the main suspect in the matter and a guido i think it's called right is it a guido is that the right word arguido is Ar the word yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Our Guido, and he's the third person who made Arguido, well, the fourth person, because the McCanns were both made Arguidos. Uh, and by making him an Arguido, it means they have I think, five years or three years to, to kind of investigate him further. And the German police believe they've got everything they need pretty much to convict him, but I think they're still hoping for more evidence. They found an enormous stash of material that he made at uh, a box factory, a derelict box factory in East Germany. They dug it up. It, there were memory sticks in there. There were books. There was all sorts of um, storage devices. And uh, I'm pretty certain on there there's there's a link to Madeleine. I think that's, that's what I'm being led to believe. Right. I, I guess here we are 17 years, nearly 17 years after you first set off to to arrive in that town that nobody, I don't think anyone had really heard of, Praia de Luz back in the day. If I could pronounce it correctly, it's only thanks to reporting uh, from people such as you. Uh, do you think we're going to discover the truth about what happened to her that night now? Do you think, are you more confident now than you were a while back that we're finally going to know what happened to uh, little Madeline McCann that night? I'm very certain that in the next year following on from this trial assuming there's a conviction and in germany once you get convicted of of a number of very serious crimes you then get put in front of a panel of judges who will then rule that you go to prison for life and you can only get out via this panel of judges if they judge that you're safe and once they've got him in this is a, a permanent life sentence then they will be able to negotiate with him to try and get um, him to come clean on some of the things that they think they've got over him. You know, the, the chief prosecutor says he's very confident um, that he will be found guilty, that he's very confident that he murdered Madeleine McCann, abducted and murdered her. And he's continued to say that. I've spoken to him a number of times, interviewed him a number of times, I've met him in the flesh and... I believe this is a very organized, measured man. He's got a fantastically good police force. This is the FBI of Germany, the BKR. guy called um, Inspector Grimm in charge of it. He's a very capable man. I I'm absolutely certain that we will know what happened to Madeleine McCann within the next couple of years, possibly this year. John, uh, I really appreciate your time and your insight into this. Uh, we'll look for the second book uh, out soon, I gather. The name will be... Yeah, I, we haven't decided yet, okay. but um, you'll be, we'll let you know. Okay, John, I, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. I remember one of the more interesting interviews that we did. Sometimes you just remember things that people told you. You may not even remember who you were talking to or what exactly you were talking about. But at one point, I remember doing an interview on the show where someone talked about us living in the age of plastics, that, you know, that, that this century was the, and last century, was sort of the plastic age, the plasticine, he called it, I believe. Um, and it got me thinking about that conversation when I saw this story today. Um, most of us have probably consumed a bottle of water or two at some time in the not-so-distant past. So I, I found this pretty interesting. Researchers in the U.S. have discovered uh, through samples of bottled water sold in stores that they can contain 10 to 100 times more bits of plastic than previously estimated. Now, the reason that is, uh, it's because these are nanoparticles. 
tiny, tiny, tiny particles, uh, a thousandth the average width of a human hair, so small they can't actually be seen under a microscope. Until recently, they couldn't be spotted at all. So uh, researchers hypothesized that they were in there. They just didn't have a proper way of making sure they were testing it. So in this study using something called SRS, they found that one liter of bottled water contained on average about 240,000 plastic particles from seven types of plastics. Now these range again in their samples from 110 to 400,000 according to the study published uh, Monday in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. 10% were microplastics, larger particles that had been revealed before. We knew they were there. And the other 90% were identified as these minuscule, these nanoplastics. Um, again, scientists long figured that they were there, uh, but until, and they'd studied microplastics, as I mentioned. But until researchers at Columbia and Rutgers universities did their calculations, they never knew how many or what kind. So the big story, of course, well, what does this mean? What, what would the health impacts be? Those aren't exactly clear at this point. The International Bottled Water Association, there is such a thing, it represents the industry, as its name would suggest, told CNN, quote, there are currently, uh, there currently is both a lack of standardized methods and no scientific consensus on the potential health impacts of nano and microplastic particles. Therefore, media reports about these particles in drinking water do nothing more than unnecessarily scare consumers. Uh, that's the industry's position on this. That being said, I mean, we are living in a time where plastics are absolutely everywhere. And I think one of the oft-told and perhaps not often enough told stories is what kind of impact does that have on us, on the world that we live in? Uh, so joining me now is Phoebe Stapleton. She's an associate professor within the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at Rutgers. She took part uh, in this research. She was one of those who put her name to this research. Phoebe, thank you for your time tonight. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So, I mean, this is the most basic of questions, but what did you set out to find? So we set out to find if there indeed were the nanoplastics in bottled water. Um, other groups had done uh, microplastics, and those had been identified in in everything, um, but scientists knew about nanoplastics, but didn't really have a great way or tool to be able to identify them and quantify them. What is a nanoplastic exactly? I mean, I think you could people can figure it out just by the name between micro and nano, but what exactly is a nanoplastic? So a nanoplastic is, is just that, it's a smaller size or a smaller piece of a plastic particle. Um, I've made the analogy that if you think of a boulder and a grain of sand, and that grain of sand is a micro particle or microplastic, you can make the same analogy with a microplastic as the boulder and a nanoplastic as the grain oh, of sand. So that they're much about, smaller, yeah. Yeah, they're about a thousand times um, smaller than the smallest of the microplastic. Oh, wow. How did you go about doing this? Because I understand up until recently, it actually wasn't possible to uh, to spot these. Right. That's the most exciting part about this study is that we've known about them, especially from the engineered nanomaterial world. We know that they're able to be produced and, and found in some context. But when you're using the environmental side, you're not sure what to look for, I guess. And this tool um, using the Raman spectrometry allowed us to be able to create a computer visual of them, but also be able to count them and identify what type of plastic they were, what the what the polymer was. So it's it's very exciting. What did you find? We found uh, hundreds of thousands of nano-sized particles. 
And um, we were able to identify the chemistry of about 10% of those. So the other 90% either weren't in our library or might be a, another type of organic material. Um, and so we found, yeah, seven different types of plastics. The most interesting thing I thought on, on my end was that we had looked at three different brands of water and the top polymer, the most abundant plastic was different in each one of those. And that part I thought was fascinating. Yeah, because I think the, you know, the layperson might predict that what you know these nanoparticles would be coming from the bottle itself but that's you found uh evidence that that mightn't be the case at least not in all situations that's it exactly i think that was our hypothesis going in that we would find you know particles from the bottle itself particles from the cap itself and those i guess would be expected but maybe not in the number that we found um but then we found particles that we are, are not from that. They may be from a production component or they may be from the source water itself. We're, we're not sure. Yeah, I, I was reading with, with different I mean, people have been reporting on the study today that, um, you know, filters could be an issue. There are a whole bunch of different processes that go into making a bottle of bottled water. Although I can, it's not that complex, but there could be many different places where these nanoparticles are coming from. That's it exactly. And that's, that's some of our hypotheses is that they maybe coming from the filter itself. So one of the types of plastics we found, uh, which is polyamide or nylon, it's often used in, in filters. And then uh, we also found a PVC or a polyvinyl chloride. And we hypothesized that might've come from the source water itself. But yes, you usually think of all of those purification and filtering as, as taking things out, not necessarily being additive. So that part was very interesting. And you mentioned that uh, I know you weren't talking about the brands that you that you tested specifically because you, you know you want to do some more research on this. But again, you said it was pretty common. The number of nanoplastics in each of these each of these bottles was pretty common right across the brands you tested. Yes, there was there was some variability, and I could see how someone would say that that variability is a lot. But overwhelmingly, there were hundreds of thousands of of these particles. Right. And because in the past, when we tested the microplastics, I gather people had found evidence of microplastics in similar bottles, but at a far lower rate. Yes. Sherry Mason's group has done a lot of work in that area, and she's found uh, microplastics in bottles of water, tap water, beer, wine, some food products she's worked with as well. And the part that was interesting from our study is our quantification of the microplastics, the larger ones, was in exactly the same range as they had found. We were just um, able to use our technology to be able to find those nano-sized ones as well. And those were exponentially higher than the microplastics. Right. So, so in, the, in that sense, you actually tested for the micros. I guess you would, right? You tested for everything that was in there or you were looking for everything that was in there. We were, we were. We were looking for everything that was in there, not knowing exactly what we'd find. What about, I mean, I don't know. I guess you didn't test other beverages in plastic bottles or other plastic bottles? No, we haven't done that yet. Uh, this was to be able to identify if this technology could be used to quantify and identify uh, micro nanoplastics. And so now that we've identified it can be, that really opens the door for a lot of other analyses, whether those are other beverages or food sources, 
Personally, I'm really interested in the biology side. So looking at tissues and identifying, you know, now that we know that they're definitely getting in, what, um, where are they going and which ones are going there? Phoebe Stapleton is with us. She's an associate professor uh, with the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology at Reuters University. We're talking about a study she's taken part in uh, that found uh, a bunch, tons of tiny particles called nanoplastics in bottles of water that they tested, uh, several different brands of bottled water. Um, I guess the big question here then, Phoebe, is I, we, I don't think we know, but are they harmful? And, 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 and how much do we know about the health impacts? Yes, I think it's, unfortunately, it's too early to tell yet uh, if they're harmful and if so, how harmful they may be. Um, there, there are many groups that are looking at that now. Some have done work in cells and been able to put uh, micro and nanoplastics on the cells, and they look at the uptake into the cell. Um, they look at what we define as internalization or bringing it into the cell and how those plastics um, interact with DNA and other cellular processes. And they found some toxicity there. So the next questions would be how those cells interact in a full tissue and how those tissues interact in a full system because biology isn't in a vacuum. Right. Of course, these plastics have chemicals in them, period, right? So I suppose part of the concern would be that these are being carried into the body through these nano these nanoparticles. Yes, that's another great area. So that is twofold. Not only do you have the plastic particle, but often these plastics are made with what's identified as a plasticizing chemical. And this is what allows a polystyrene to be both a hard, rigid plastic, but also the foam that we use to keep our food cold um, in a cooler. And so those plasticizing chemicals have some toxicity associated with them, uh, specifically endocrine disrupting effects. And then secondary to that, before the plastic gets into us, what is its life like? Are there um, different types of organics or metals that might be added to the surface of that plastic as well? And could those be harmful then? Right. So in a nutshell for now, I guess we just don't know. I know the the industry came out today and sort of, and said, you know, there's no there's a lack of standardized measuring and scientific consensus on the health impacts of these nano and microparticles. And so uh, the media reports are, are un- unnecessarily scare consumers. I'm su- I assume they would say that, but I guess that for the time being, it is, we just don't know yet. I think, I think that's true. And, and, um, and I saw those reports and, and yes, I'd, I'd expect them to say just that. And I think we've seen that in many other health concerns as well. I think we've seen many other, commercial groups and lobbyists say something is perfectly safe until it's identified that it isn't. And I just am not always sure that's the best bet just because there's an absence of evidence doesn't mean that there's no issue there. Right. Very Sherlock Holmesian. Uh, when you tap water always comes up. And I guess one of the issues here, if you filter your tap water, you are finding these nanoparticles that could be from the filtration process as well. So uh, that that's a bit of a dilemma. It is. And that's a really hard and and personal choice for many, because I know in the United States, the water quality from the tap water might not be safe. We've had issues with lead in many areas and um, those types of factors, and especially during storms and things when the water quality isn't safe, then you're you're left with bottled water. And that... um, And I think that's a weight of knowns and unknowns. I mean, we know the dangers of dehydration. We know many of the dangers associated with lead, and we don't necessarily know the dangers associated with these particles yet. And so it's kind of a weighing the 
the option that's best for you and your family. Yeah, I'm thinking of all those pallets of bottled water delivered to Flint, right? I mean, that was one of those situations. What next right. for your yeah? What next for your research then? Because I guess there are still questions to answer. Yes. Yeah, so our group from Colombia is interested in looking at the tap water from different regions of the United States, and so they're going to compare uh, some water from New York City, compare that to New Jersey, compare that to say Oregon State or Florida. And my work in particular is in the toxicity. So we've previously identified that these nanoparticles, nanoplastics can breach or bypass the biological membranes, biological barriers. So we know once these nanoparticles get into the GI system, for example, within 24 hours, we're able to find them in other tissues. And that's been shown in humans as well. We've found these micro nanoplastics in human blood and human placenta and human lung tissue. Um, and so I'm interested in finding out where these particles are going, how long they're staying there, what happens when they are there and how and when do they get back out again? Yeah. Um, we, so that's, that's where, that's where our work is going to be going. Uh, any Have you made any changes yourself? I mean, I know a lot of us people sort of avoid drinking bottled water for a number of reasons, environmental principally. Have you made any any lifestyle changes yourself since all this was all this studying was being done? I I haven't made grand lifestyle changes. I carried an aluminum bottle with me before, but I definitely recognize that it has a plastic lid associated with it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, trying to drink more, I guess, of the filtered water until we identify that the filter is is a greater concern than the bottled water is. But um, primarily using using that and avoiding dehydration, I guess. It all reminded me of a conversation I had with a with another researcher maybe last year where we were sort of referring to the age of plastics or the plastic scene or plasticine uh, oh, yeah. as it was being called, and just how much we're still learning about this product that actually, in the grand scheme of things, has been with us for a speaking of grains of sand, has been with us for a blip in time. That's correct. And that's one of the problems with the health concerns is that these particles, these plastics have only been here for maybe 100 years. And it depends on what type of plastic you're talking about, because there are hundreds of different types of plastics at the same time. So yes, I think if anything, we might even be ahead of the game on this one a little bit to identify them, but they're being used astronomically. And there doesn't seem to be any slowing on their on their use. So I think recognizing that their use and their life cycle and the uh, discarding of them, that they're coming back, I think is something to consider as it pertains to policy and regulation and recycling efforts, things of that nature. It's a big, powerful and profitable industry. Do you get a lot of pushback? I I feel like I'm going to get more after this paper, that's for sure. I wasn't necessarily expecting the bottled water industry to to have comments back and and that was very naive of me um so i i expect more but i have gotten more support from the health effects and environmental concerns i think um more support there than i've gotten pushback from the industry so far well phoebe we look forward to seeing what comes next with your research thank you so much for taking the time tonight thank you thank you so much for having me This new exercise program is great. Yeah, every muscle in my body's getting a workout. Especially my big fat mouth. Yeah, especially your big fat... Oh, wait. Raise your right hook. Eat. Raise your left hook. Eat. 
I want to see more Teddy Roosevelt's and less Franklin Roosevelt's. <laughs> Two. Mm, actually, Homer, that's just one. See, each push-up includes both an up part and a down part. <laughs> the Simpsons uh, exercising. You know, you know, I'm a fan of The Simpsons. So whenever we do something like this, sometimes I'll go look for a clip uh, that makes sense. And that one, of course, uh, did Mr. Burns leading uh, the whole crew at the nuclear power plant uh, in a little calisthenics and some exercise. Um, it's that time of the year, of course, when we're all looking to stick to those resolutions to maybe eat better and exercise more. Maybe not. Maybe not all of you. But, you know, there certainly is a spike in the number of people who vow to uh, to live a healthier 2024, at least early on. Now, back in the day, that used to mean, and we've done story. I mean, I've done stories on this many, many times over the years. It meant like a spike in gym memberships. Many of them left um, sort of abandoned not too long from now um, or ads for the latest fad diets, whatever they may be, diet books, goes on and on and on. These days, though, like so much else out there, uh, you can really add tech into this mix because there are a huge number of tech options out there from fitness trackers, you know, smartwatches, smart scales, apps, and so on. All of it out there meant to get us on the right path, to help us, to give us a little leg up when it comes to uh, to keeping these these promises. Um, now, it's certainly been a success. The fitness tracking industry, I think, last I read, was estimated to bring in about $45 billion a year. And each January, fitness app downloads jump by like 40%. They're 40% higher than usual. So you can tell it is, in fact, working. A lot of us want to know. We feel like knowing these numbers, how many steps you took, what your heart rate is, helps us, will help us make us make us healthier, will help us make these proper choices. Uh, but there's a bit of a problem here that, that my next guest points out. Uh, the data isn't making us any healthier. Obesity rates aren't falling. Diabetes rates aren't falling either. Um, now, fitness trackers and all that other stuff can't necessarily be the cause here. But all that data, and they may not be as accurate as you would hope, by the way, as well, or even measure the right kind of stuff. Um, but maybe all that data isn't really that useful unless we know how to use it properly. And perhaps one of the healthiest things we can do in 2024, at least according to my next guest, is to go on a bit of a data diet. Uh, joining me now is Samantha Kleinberg. She's the Farber Chair Associate Professor in the Department of Computer Science at the Stephen, Stevens Institute of Technology and author of Why? A Guide to Finding Out and Using Causes. Samantha, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. This is such a prescient article. The moment I saw it, I thought, ah, here we are. It's the beginning of a new year. People are heavily invested in sort of making lifestyle changes to some extent. And what used to be sort of what we used to call just the diet industry or the exercise industry has now migrated so effectively into tech and apps and so on. Uh, it was just really interesting to, uh, to get your take on it. I, I imagine that's what prompted the timing of the article. Yeah, exactly. Um, like everyone else, I'm seeing the ads on Instagram, on Facebook, on you know websites. And you can see them ramp up at the end of the year and as January starts. And so I thought, okay, I need to write something about this. Uh, save at least a few people from buying something they don't need or getting disappointed, right? And having expectations that the devices can't meet. Yeah, tell me a bit about that because, you know, back in the day, I remember it was sort of calorie counting and so on. But now we have all these apps and all these devices that feed us data that we think must be pointing us in the right direction at the very least. Yeah, I think that's exactly the problem is that we're not going into it thinking, I have a problem. And, you know, can I find something to solve the problem? We're thinking, wow, this device gives me 
it tells me how many seconds my foot touches the ground during my run. You know, that's so exciting. Um, what can I do with that? Right. So it's kind of reverse that, you know, we have this hammer and then we're trying to find a nail, you know, to hit it with. Um, but some of the metrics just aren't useful or aren't important. Um, and so I find myself in the position of I'm a person who does research on health and AI. And so friends, family, they come to me and say, what should I buy? Or what's the most accurate device? Or, you know, what can I do with that? And I'm always the one going, well, what's your actual use case, right? What do you really want to do? If I give you this device, you know, and you see output from it, how are you going to use it? Um, and, you know, once they go through that journey, their feeling at the end is very different from where they start. They start off thinking, oh, you know, I need the most accurate heart rate monitor. I need to measure heart rate variability. I need to track stress, all these things. I need to track my sleep. You know, I just want the best sensor to do this. Um, how do I find it? realize, you know, I don't actually want to track coffee and alcohol and my stress and all these other things that I need to track to make sense of that data. Um, and it's really tracking the thing that I know myself, right? You kind of know how well you slept, you know, you have some idea of stress. And what you really need to make sense of the, the data is all the other stuff that could be contributing to the poor sleep or stress and all of that. And at the end, they uh, declare themselves usually cured from wanting to purchase things. So I saved a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> I've done this personally. You develop a bit of a tunnel vision when you get these devices because you start to adapt the way you think about your day-to-day, -day, say, exercise rate based almost solely on what your watch is telling you. Yeah. So you see a lot of people, you know, instead of thinking, how do I feel or how did I sleep? they look to the device and say, oh, well, it says I slept poorly. And so I must have slept poorly, but they feel great. Or it's saying, you know, it's great, but they feel really tired. And like, no, no, I must be fine. <laughs> right. Or, um, you know, you start, you know, getting the tunnel vision where you're focused on the numbers and the metrics that don't really matter. Um, so you're focused on maybe you want to be more active, but you get, you know, really focused on the number of steps per day or something like that. And then that's when you see these people doing things like, you know, putting trackers on their dog or on a fan is one case I've heard, or I saw someone you know, flailing at a meeting, trying to fool the device to think he's walking around. And you're like, what are you getting out of that? You're lying to yourself at the, the smartwatch, right? Yeah. My story goes back a while because this was back when they were a little, uh, a little more sensitive, I guess. But I, at one point I had a fitness tracker and I realized that it would count steps when I lifted a pint glass. So if, if I lifted the pint <laughs> glass with the hand that the tracker was on, it would actually count it as a step. And I thought, isn't that, isn't that ridiculous? Um, <laughs> but when you look at it, I mean, you pointed out though, that part of the issue is that even as we become more and more data informed or data rich in our ability to kind of track our own personal being every day, whether it be the calories we take or our heart rate, sleep, steps, et cetera, et cetera. We're not getting any healthier as far as you can tell. Yeah. I think one part of it is we don't really understand how inaccurate a lot of these devices are. Um, so on the activity trackers, there have been studies that, you know, even if you allow a 10% margin of error, only half the devices meet that. And even 10%, you know, that's pretty broad. If you calculate, you know, I did math at one point and figured out you could gain 10 pounds in a year if you're trusting it to figure out, you know, how many calories you should intake and using that data to figure out how many calories you expend. And so it's a huge margin of error. Um, I think one thing that's surprising to a lot of people I talk to is there's error in nutrition labels. Mm -hmm. And so if you're tracking that you're doing and all of your fitness and then thinking, oh, well, packaged food, that's a lot easier to figure out how many calories I'm consuming because it's right there on the label, right? I don't need to do any math. 
And actually in the US, you can have a 20% margin of error there. Um, I did look into Canada, it seems to be about the same. Um, and again, the same thing at the, with the devices, that's allowable error, do they all meet it? No. <laughs> and so instead, some studies, they found that um, in a few restaurants, dishes had twice as many calories as were shown on the menu. Now, having the data isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? It's how you put the data to use. I think that's what I really gleaned from your article, that it's not about necessarily knowing those numbers. It's about how we how we employ those numbers or how we use them uh, or, or how much we rely on them. Exactly. Uh, so I'm glad your takeaway wasn't, you know, become a lot of no data. Uh, I'm against all, all devices and technology. Um, no, I think there's lots of great technology and out there. Um, it's about making sure you have something that's really accurate for what you need to measure, that you're measuring the thing that matters, um, and that it's actionable, right? Because some of the stuff we measure, you just can't do anything about it, right? So you do these recreational you know, DNA tests, you learn you're at risk for something that's not preventable, um, you know, that might not be a valuable thing to learn. Whereas other things, uh, one of the greatest success stories that I can think of is in type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, where there you can measure glucose. I know a lot of people without diabetes are now using continuous glucose monitors, which may be not quite so useful. Um, you can deliver insulin continuously, and now there are algorithms that can hook up the CGM, the continuous glucose monitor, to the insulin pump, and they take care of all the stuff that solves, all that math, figuring out you know, how much insulin do I need after a meal, uh, but that's a case where you can measure what matters, you can measure glucose, you can measure it accurately enough to make decisions based on it. And you also know if you're right, which is really important, right? You know, you know, if your glucose is not in the range it should be in after a meal, you know something is wrong in your algorithm or in the devices, where a lot of the other stuff we use, we can't really tell if it's right or not, right? We don't really know for sure. You can't look at a nutrition label or, you know, eat a meal, um, you know, that's packaged and no, you know, was it correct? Was that information correct? Um, so that's a really powerful use case. Samantha Kleinberg is with us. Her book is called Why? A Guide to Finding and Using Causes. She's just written a, a really interesting article about our obsession uh, with fitness tracking, with health and fitness tracking. Of course, this time of year, you'll be bombarded uh, with ads for these things because, of course, they know you're making those resolutions uh, for the new year. And these are all ways they're basically, I mean, it's it's been going on forever and ever and ever. Just technology has become such a big part of it uh, of late. So a data diet, it's an interesting an interesting concept. Uh, what does it look like? <laughs> it looks like being more mindful about your data, right? So there's this great story in the Times uh, about professional runners. And you think you know, they're going to use the most technology and the most devices and measure everything. And actually what they saw is they were stressing out about the numbers and they were listening to you know, what the watch says or feeling like you, know, you need to run fast on every run or you know, treat it like a race because of the numbers and the feedback you're getting. And instead, they really need to learn to think about how they actually feel, right, um, and feel the paces of their running. And some of them have gone back to, you know, just the the cheap Timex watches that it's like a stopwatch from the 80s. It doesn't have GPS. There's no music. There's nothing fancy. Um, and have found that they have a healthier relationship with their running. Yeah, I can I can imagine that that the data does uh, become you sort of become at competition with yourself, and and I don't feel like that's ever a good thing. And I'm as guilty as anybody else of doing it. But you, you you sort of become, you know, you have this thing that's sort of, we're obsessed with ourselves to some extent, right? So you have this thing that kind of is ca- is creating this feedback loop for you about how you're doing. And so you're constantly trying to improve upon something without ever thinking, I wonder if that's actually necessary or even beneficial to my health. 
Exactly. You start competing with yourself thinking, oh, I want steps yesterday. I need to do more today, right? Every day you need to do somehow more, which is not sustainable, of course, right? The goal is, you know, have a healthy level of activity and just maintain that. Um, but maintenance is maybe a little bit less exciting than, you know, beating the metrics every day and doing more. Um, but then it can lead to not actually listening to how you're feeling getting injured because you're trying to run faster every day or run farther every day. Um, when actually sometimes your body is saying, maybe take a day off or rest a bit. Yeah. I mean, of course, what your data tracker will never tell you because they're on seven days a week, 365 or 366 <laughs> days, 365 days a year. Uh, what what advice do you have? You were saying that earlier, of course, that your family often come to you to talk about this stuff and you'll you'll often convince them, listen, you don't need the, the most expensive and most sophisticated fitness tracker out there, or, you know, the most expensive health app that you can buy. Uh, what do you tell people? Because of course, lots of people are interested in this stuff and they, they will buy these devices and wear them and get the apps and so on. What What, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, it really depends on what your use is. And I think curiosity is fine as a use case, right? If you just really want to know more, it's cool that we can learn more about our bodies, right? I wore a continuous glucose monitor for a week mm-hmm. to see what it was like. Um, and it's neat to see you eat a meal, you see what your pancreas is doing, and you realize like, you know, it's like having a self-driving car and you don't have to do anything and your glucose goes back in a healthy range. Um but it also caused anxiety. There was a case when I was on a run and my glucose was really low. Um, there was other ones where you're getting alarms and I knew I was actually fine, uh, but the alarm is going off and it's so annoying that you're trying to think like, you know, should I prick my finger and see, you know, what's going on? And I had this thing beeping at me. Um, and even though I knew I was okay, I still had that anxiety from it. Um, and so making sure you understand what are you actually trying to get from the device um, and can it do that thing? So for example, my friend wanted to get uh, a heart rate monitor and then was asking about what's the most accurate monitor for EKG. Um, and then it really turned out that his watch was telling him that he was really stressed out while he was driving, but he felt fine, which was so funny because then if you feel fine, it seems like there's not really a problem there to be solved. Uh, but he felt there was a problem because the watch was telling him that, you know, it's freaking out, that he's really stressed out. Um, so then we went through this whole process and it turned out that his wife had a watch that was telling her she was really stressed out at that, which was fascinating, a little bit of competition there. Yeah. Um, but then you wonder, like, what do you do with that number if it tells you you're stressed out, right? Do you need something externally to tell you that? Do you need, you know, to show other people, hey, believe me, I'm really stressed out? Um, and think about what would that actually be like? And are you willing to track the other things you need to make sense of the data, which is often really important that many of these devices, you can't just use the numbers from those. So even, you know, with the CGM, there's lots of these companies that will help you figure out what foods affect your glucose different ways. You need to track your food intake, right? So the device is measuring glucose, that's great, but you need to log everything you eat to be able to make sense of that data. And often there's a lot of work that goes into this um, to be able to make sense of the data that people aren't thinking about up front. Because yeah, you wonder what the data the data is behind all of this. Like, how do we land on 10,000 steps as being perfect? Or how do we land on certain heart rates being, you know, we, we know this stuff has come from 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 different, I mean, I, I assume it's scientific, but I don't know for Not sure. Not always. The, right. yeah, I think the 10,000 steps was uh, an advertising campaign from a company developing a, a pedometer. Right, um, of a, yeah. a lot of this stuff comes from just sort of like coincidence or there's a round number. Um, but there's nothing in that that says that's the right target for you. Uh, Samantha, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you.